Coming up on OkraCast from the Southern Foodways Alliance, Tina Antolini brings us the story of a nearly forgotten heirloom pepper in Baltimore. Stay with us. Hamilton, and welcome to OkraCast from the Southern Foodways Alliance. OkraCast maps food culture across the changing American South. Each week, we explore the stories of our region's dynamic people, places, and traditions. Time can do funny things to some dishes and ingredients. Foods that once were common can become rare. Tina Antolini brings us the story of a hot pepper that provides a window into the history of one corner of the Upper South, and perhaps a glimpse into its future, too. Sometimes perusing a menu in a restaurant, you see things on it that are mysterious. It could be some heirloom vegetable you've just never heard of, or some foreign spice. But occasionally, that unknown ingredient is like a portal into a place, and a side of that place you might not know about. There are many recognizable Maryland classics on the menu at Woodbury Kitchen, a Baltimore restaurant that approaches the local sourcing of its food with almost religious zeal. They serve a crab cake like a big man's fist, decorated with scallions singed in the wood oven. But look closely at the menu, and you see one ingredient, repeated over and over again. Something called the fish pepper. I can count at least five items on the menu. Nope, there's six. It's in the pickles, on the flatbreads, in the crab pot, mixed with the chard. Oh man, they even have a cocktail with the fish pepper in it. I have a lot of questions about that. People always come in, it's, uh, the fish pepper, is that fishy? What, I'm a vegetarian, can I eat that? This pepper is so unknown that my waiter gets quizzed on it nightly. So how did the chef at one of the hottest restaurants in Baltimore become so enamored of it? That is a story that taps into a very specific and dark part of the history of this region. It's a culinary detective story with a spicy prize. And it starts with the man who meets me the next day in the now empty dining room as waiters prepare for service. My name is Michael Twitty. I'm a culinary historian, and we are here at Woodbury Kitchen in the Hampton section of Baltimore. Michael's journey with the fish pepper begins several years ago when he was at a plant sale and something labeled as a Thai pepper caught his eye. He'd never seen anything like it before. Really pretty, the fact that the um, leaves were variegated, the fact that the pepper itself was all different kinds of colors, and it was just a riot. And I looked at it and said, okay, Thai, this isn't, I don't know why they didn't feel right. Michael's used to questioning these sorts of things. He's been using food as a conduit to research his African-American and African ancestors for years. And he's found that often the most readily available information about a dish or an ingredient is just the first step in figuring out the whole story. So he wasn't surprised when, reading some old seed catalogs, he happened on a picture of the same pepper. And it says African-American. And I go, okay, so this is a theme in our food history. You know, sorghum gets mislabeled, Native American or Chinese sugarcane, and our peppers get labeled they're from Thailand and anything but (laughs) the hood, you know? (laughs) Be it West Africa or be it Baltimore, anything but the hood. So Michael started digging around about the fish pepper. How come he'd never heard of it before? And that led to a man who lives a little bit north of Maryland, 
a Pennsylvanian named William Woyes Weaver, who has a bit of a garden himself. Here, I have a South African radish. This is a medieval cabbage, and that corn is Hagawa Seneca hominy corn. This is the mother plant from which Brussels sprouts evolved. So we've got an English tomato, Flemish cabbage, a South France fava bean, an Austrian lettuce. Okay, here we go. This is really called international. William lives in the countryside outside of Philadelphia in a house surrounded by the gardens that are his life work. Like Michael, William comes to his interest in food through one in genealogy. In fact, he inherited his passion for seed saving from his grandfather. H. Ralph Weaver was an accountant, but his true love was plants, especially rare ones. And he spent all of his time outside. I don't ever remember seeing him in his office working on the books. He would just put things down and go outside and tinker with his trees and his bees and his racing pigeons. He had racing pigeons. And the bees are what connect the weavers to the fish pepper, oddly enough. Back in the early 20th century, William's grandfather befriended an African-American folk artist named Horace Pippin, who lived near the family in Westchester. Mr. Pippin wanted to get stung. My grandfather had bees. That's how it happened. That takes some explaining. Pippin had an old war injury, and he subscribed to the belief that bee stings would help his arthritis. At first, William's grandfather bellyached about it, not wanting to sacrifice his bees or be responsible if Pippin had some sort of adverse reaction. So Mr. Pippin was a very clever man. Uh, he brought seeds. These were the bribes to get stung, all right? Seeds for stings. And not just any seeds. Seeds that William's grandfather would think were interesting. So Pippin, I think, he knew people of color in the city and Baltimore, because he moved around a lot. I mean, he traveled and he had art shows. He asked around and he got things for my grandfather that had interesting stories. It wasn't just a bell pepper or something of the kind. It had to be special. And the fish pepper was one of them. But not long after the exchange of seeds for stings, William's grandfather died suddenly of a heart attack. The garden was neglected until years later when William decided to revive it. He was helping his grandmother go through her cellar, including a giant freezer chest. So I said, Granny, look, we've got to get into this thing and clean it up. And as we were getting all of the, this stuff out, there on the very bottom of the, of the freezer, the very bottom level, were, oh, 50 to 100 baby food jars. I think my grandfather recycled them for his seed collection. I mean, that's the way he was, good Quaker, you know, throw nothing away. So I'm looking at this and I'm saying, what is this? Oh, Grandpa's seeds. William decided to try growing one of the ones labeled as coming from Horace Pippin. It produced this unusual-looking striped pepper with a nice flavor and a fiery heat. He decided to list it on Seed Savers Exchange, an organization that allows home gardeners to share rare varieties of plants with one another. And it was like, all of a sudden, this hurricane of mail. Uh, what? Where did you get this? What? Blah, blah, on and on and on. This stuff is unique. Is it? I didn't know that. I thought everybody had fish peppers. No! Almost nobody had seen them. Because before William listed it, the fish pepper had almost entirely disappeared. The reason why has to do with the very specific history of African Americans in Maryland. Which is what brings us back to Michael Twitty in Baltimore. The city was built by slave labor. And it was finished by a free black labor that couldn't go anywhere. The city was basically a jail 
it was a jail because the minute you stepped out of the bounds of Baltimore City, you could be caught and sold down the river fast and you could say amen. Michael says that's a side of this city's history that usually stays beneath the surface, undiscussed. And hot peppers play a part in it. They served a number of functions in the lives of the slaves here. They spiced up a mostly bland diet, but they had medicinal purposes too. During slavery, most enslaved people had worms, intestinal worms. That was the most common ailment. And of course it caused other issues. So red pepper was actually one of the things that would actually purge those from the body. So this was not just a culinary thing or a food preference thing. It was a matter of life and death. One of the legacies of slavery in this part of Maryland, Michael says, were the gardens. Slaves had their own vegetable patches here, unlike on some plantations in the Deep South, where the demands of cotton kept them from farming for their own dinners. Here, they could grow what they wanted, and when free, African Americans in Maryland kept gardening. You know, Baltimore was full of them, which is very ironic. A city that's full of vacant lots now would have been full of gardens grown by African Americans. In fact, this was the produce market that African Americans ran. And the fish pepper was one of the things they grew. Michael says its name likely stems from how nicely it complements Chesapeake Bay seafood. The peppers were prized by African-American caterers in both Baltimore and Philadelphia because some of them turn all white when ripening. They could be ground into a snowy cayenne to spike creamy sauces and soups. Fish peppers were popular. So how did they go from that to a nearly forgotten seed at the bottom of William Woy's Weaver's freezer? It wasn't a change of taste. Michael says it was the changing aspirations of Baltimore's African-American community in the early 20th century. People of color are moving out of professions that they deem to be menial. We're moving from the land. We're moving from service jobs, especially cooking. As African-Americans embraced an urban, more progressive identity, Michael says, there was an intentional distancing from their agrarian roots and the vegetables associated with them, as if they were attached to a painful past. Putting your hands in the soil became an offense. You know, became an offense to the eye and the spirit. And it was slave work. To this day, you first thing you hear from, you know, kids, our kids, we're trying to introduce them to this stuff is, I ain't no slave. And it's not an attitude based on youth. It's an attitude based on the generations. And it was an attitude Michael wanted to change, to renew a pride in this history. He wrote a pamphlet called Fighting Old Nep about the food of the enslaved people of Maryland, including the fish pepper. He printed it out on his home printer. And gradually, those pamphlets made their way around Baltimore. They landed in the hands of a couple of people for whom the fish pepper would end up meaning a whole lot. One of those people is wearing overalls and trying to balance a radio interview with farm chores. So what 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 you doing right now for people who can't see? I am seeding trays right now. I, it is this is a weekly chore, uh, a habit ritual of uh, starting anywhere from thirty to sixty trays of whatever. We do I do lettuce every week? You always got to be a few steps ahead I of yourself. You have steps ahead of of uh, Mother Nature for real. She's gonna kick my behind. <laughs> Denzel Mitchell owns Five Seeds Farm. Today we're in his fields out in Sparks, Maryland, which ironically are beneath towering power lines that buzz and hum occasionally in the humidity. You might notice the sound in the background. 
But Denzel started the farm in the middle of Baltimore. It was six vacant lots across the street from a house that um, we bought in the city. Denzel had been a high school teacher who found himself drawn to farming to teach his kids where their food came from. It was not a career switch people in his urban African-American community really understood. And especially not young black men who grew up in the 90s. I mean, you know, no, this is no way at all sexy. But just around when Denzel started farming, he got a hold of Michael Twitty's pamphlet on the foods of enslaved Marylanders. As a black man, to understand that, you know, to read that and to understand, like, how important food is. Like, wow, this is hot. This is what I've been looking for, you know, because it, it, the story of the fish pepper was so steeped in African-American history, Maryland, food history. It was like the Holy Grail. So I was like, OK, I'm, I'm, with the, I'm down with the fish pepper. Denzel started growing them. A farmer friend had mentioned to him that there was some chef who was looking for the fish peppers, too. And when Denzel met Spike Jirdy, the chef at Woodbury Kitchen, he decided he should introduce himself. And he said, oh, OK, cool. What are you growing? And I said, uh, fish peppers. And he was like, what? <laughs> he had completely lost it. And at the time, I didn't know that Spike had never even seen one before. So he flipped out, basically. He completely flipped out. I mean, I cannot, I cannot, I'm pretty animated, and I cannot animate the level of excitement that he expressed to, at that time, a complete stranger. And so, in short order, we were out, you know, in his field. It's actually here in the city. And it was the first time I'd seen a fish pepper. I hadn't seen it, tasted it, and here they were in the field, in his little plot, and that was, we were off to the races. Literally a handful of fish peppers in that first year. Spike bought Denzel's entire crop of fish peppers the first year, and just about all of them since. It turns out he had read Michael Twitty's pamphlet, too. As cooks prep for the evening's dinner at Woodbury Kitchen, Spike tells me the pamphlet was his introduction both to the fish pepper and a whole chapter of Maryland history. And I don't, feel, I don't feel like I had any, you know, having lived here almost my whole life, I still didn't have a, a, a very deep sense of contribution of enslaved Africans in this area and, and how that worked. And then, you know, to really, to be able to then talk about slaves being, you know, being a, a, a driver in, in the cuisine of, of this region, I thought was, was, you know, really changed my thinking. Of course, his affection for the fish pepper isn't just about the history. They taste good, too. <laughs> With a heat and a slight fruitiness, Spike is made useful in all sorts of ways, from pickles to hot sauce. But he says the fish pepper's story, its past and its present in the fields of an African-American farmer, they add another layer to that flavor. They make it evocative of this place. And it's become, I think, an important part of our pantry, the, the fish pepper. If you're thinking about creating cuisine in the context of a region, I mean, it's for us... It, you know, not using the fish pepper would be like uh, not using blue crab or oysters out of the Chesapeake. Now, for all its resurrection at Woodbury Kitchen, that doesn't mean the fish pepper has made a full comeback. The African-American community in Baltimore that was its source is not usually the one eating in Woodbury's beautiful dining room. But Michael Twitty says the story of bringing the fish pepper back is one of interracial collaboration. A white chef and a black farmer read the work of a black culinary historian on a plant whose seed was revived by a white culinary historian. And that, Michael says, points to something really hopeful in the South. I mean, these are very segregated cities and environments. But the fact that those worlds are colliding in great culinary ways is really a boon. A boon whose bonus 
is a cocktail with a little bit of fish pepper heat. Thanks to Tina Antolini for that culinary detective story. For more on Baltimore's fish pepper, head over to our website, southernfoodways.org. We've got links to Michael Twitty's work and to seed catalogs where intrepid gardeners can find fish pepper seeds for their own gardens. We'll catch up with you again next week. I'm Anna Hamilton, and thanks for listening. Ocrecast is the soundtrack for the Southern Foodways Alliance, bringing you the stories behind the food. The Southern Foodways Alliance documents, studies, and celebrates the diverse food cultures of the changing American South. If you're hungry for more, pay us a visit online at southernfoodways.org. I want to hear a story of how it came to pass. Okay.